Thank you for joining our podcast. We hope that this message will both teach and encourage you. Here's today's message. Well, good morning. What a great morning. Wouldn't this be a great morning for Jesus to return? I think this would be a fantastic morning for Jesus to return. How many of you would not mind writing out your bills on Monday and just skipping it? When, when it hits people, no more mortgage, no more car payment, no more going to work, no more of that labor, we're released into rest. That There's going to be some shouting. Some of you people who haven't shouted since 1957 are going to find a shout. It's going to hit you, and you're going to realize that we're leaving some things behind and we're stepping into something glorious. And it's my pleasure as a pastor to serve you to that end, to help us keep up before us what glorious things he has in store for us. Aren't you glad he has revealed it to us by his Spirit? And he continues to reveal this to us by his Spirit. Did you have a good time last Sunday? I sure enjoyed the weekend with, with Brother Joe. And I just want to commend those men who came early on Friday, on Saturday. David Wilson was the chief, uh, okay, just speaking of somebody giving me some direction, I'm getting a little production here, I'm just pulling this back, is that good? Okay, chief cook and bottle washer, David Wilson, yeah, give him a hand. Brother Gary was there cooking some fish, so we're, we're grateful for your help. Uh, David Hammonds was there helping early, moving some tables. David Rodell, I think, was there. Matt helped to get some supplies. And who else? Let's see. Jason who's not here today. He's he's working protecting the fine people of Southlake. And uh, continue to pray for Ray and Melinda as they have been displaced from their home because of a fire. Thank God. They are perfectly fine, but don't you know in your heart what that feels like when you experience loss? If you've ever experienced a theft, you know what that feels like. Now magnify that by 100 and see what might happen there. And so we're so grateful for they're okay, but it's just the biggest hassle walking through everything, clean up and insurance, and can this be thrown away, not thrown away? And then now... There is a silver lining. There will be shopping for new furniture <laughs> and new furnishings. But meanwhile, they're going to be praying for and looking for a temporary place until the house is redone and they can get back inside. And we need some speedy, uh, some speedy work and some and some favor from God on finding the resources to get that all redone. And not dragged out. How many of you agree with me on that? Put it on your prayer list. And uh, as you go before the Lord today, tomorrow in the mornings, wherever it is, lift up the Trevino family. Chris is with us this morning working back there. And he might have been the hardest hit. He He's the upper story dweller of their home. And uh, so he is displaced as well. And so what a hassle. But how many of you believe that the Lord can, through this, reveal his grace and provision, and he knows how to put the gold and the silver amongst the ashes, doesn't he? 
and we're going to find that. I'm, and so we're looking and anticipating that and just let them know you love them if you want to send them a note or uh, if you want to. I think they still get mail in their mailbox. They're going to go by and get it. If you, if you have their text, and you can text them, let them know we love them, and we're lifting them up in prayer. Uh, we had a great Sunday. We had some people visiting with us, and that was refreshing to have some people visit. And we're praying that they, that there would be those that return, right? Not only the visit, I tell them, oh, you got to come back for six weeks at least before you form an opinion. And uh, this is a, a warm house, a place where people love each other and our arms are open. Continue to pray with us that we have a wise understanding of our community and that the Lord will put some keys in our hands that we could then turn in some locks and open up some doors of opportunity for the gospel here in Lake Worth. We're, uh, this is the love month, February. <clears throat> Remember on Tuesday, it's 2 22-22. So maybe at 2.22 in the afternoon, since you won't be up in the morning, at 2.22 in the afternoon and 22 seconds, on Tuesday, you can say it's 2.22-22 at 2.22-22. How many of you just, that's just going to rock your world this week? <laughs> yeah, some of us since it's uh, all the same number, it's palindromic. It goes forwards and backwards. And so it's going to be all around good day on Tuesday. And here we go, returning to our first love. As we move into this message this morning at 10 after 10, returning to our first love. Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Jesus, in his revelation to the beloved apostle John, entrust to him these words. And he's speaking to the church at Ephesus, a church that was founded by the apostle Paul when he encountered a number of men who had heard of the message of John the Baptist, a message of repentance and the baptism of John, but had not heard about the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And when Paul comes across him, them, as he walks that inner road and others are going by way of the sea, he has a divine appointment with these men. He prays over them. They all receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And out of that event is founded the church at Ephesus. Now, if anybody knows how to found a church, you think the Apostle Paul does, the one who has written two-thirds of the New Testament, who's laid out for us our Christian theology, who had an encounter on the road of Damascus with Christ himself, who was tutored by Christ himself in the wilderness of Syria. Yeah, I think the Apostle Paul knows what he's doing when he begins a church. And so this church was built on the foundation. This church started out wonderfully. But now it's about 90 A.D., the church was founded in the 40s A.D., and now it's a generation or so later. Do you ever hear this expression? We're only a generation away from the loss of our freedoms. We're only ever a generation away from the forefront of the gospel. We're only ever in the church a generation away from the fires of revival into the coldness of apathy. And so, boy, what an illustration. Here's the church at Ephesus, and here's the message that comes 
to a church full of believers. Here's a message that comes to the church. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And here is the first church that he speaks to. And he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Don't you like perseverance? I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. They're in the discernment business. They're in the truth of God business. They're in his truth is marching on. They are in the apologetics business. They know what they believe, why they believe it, when they first believed it, and why everyone else should believe it. And they're strong in the area of truth. He says you found them to be false. You've not quit. You've persevered and have endured. So you've had opposition. You've had pressure against you. You've taken some slings and arrows. You've taken a beating. You've taken, you know what it feels like for a society to push back against you and even reject you because of who you stand for. You've endured hardships for my name. Some of you are looking and saying, what version is he looking at? That was the Doug Martin chase the rabbit version. (laughs) You've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. You ever grown weary? You just get tired. You feel like throwing in the towel, taking a break. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. This is a message that's appropriate to ring in the heart of a believer often, on a weekly basis. Why? Because sometimes we're only seven days away from apathy. Sometimes we're only seven hours, sometimes only seven minutes from slipping back into some things to, have you heard this expression, backsliding? What's backsliding? Returning back to your default settings. And when do we usually return to our default settings? When we are just going back to what's normal to us. And Jesus is constantly exerting a pressure, a tension. He's, He's working in our lives to say, hey, there's something higher. Something more, something better, something greater, something that you need to die to and something you need to be resurrected to. I have come, he said, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But there is a violence, there's a pressing forward, there's an energy that we have to exert in that direction because, after all, dead fish float downstream. And if you've ever been around a raging current, some dead fish can make some good time. But they're headed in the wrong direction. I love the opposite imagery. Those of you that might have been up in the northwest, especially up in Alaska, I know there's a couple of you that have, and have seen the salmon running. They go against that raging, runoff, melting current that's moving with debris and speed against them and they leap and they swim and they leap and they swim and they are not even eating they are have one thing in mind and that's to get back to the place where they respond back to the place where they originated that's a great image 
That's the imagery that a believer can get a hold of. Look, I'm going to stay. I'm going to fix my eyes. I'm going to press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And even if it means not eating. Now, some of you say, that's desperate, Pastor. But that's the kind of desperate love that we need to have beating in our heart that says there's nothing else more important than this, and that is to stay in that place and press from that place into all that God has for me. That's why I put this quote here. In fact, I think I made it up. I would have put the name of the person who said it unless, uh, but you know what I'm supposed to say is a very wise man said, but I didn't want to do that. I just kind of captured this in a quote. Christianity is not, first of all, a philosophy for life or discipline for the mind. It is, first of all, an experience for the heart, for the spirit, transforming everything else from there. Now, what happens if we settle for less? What happens if we make it an exercise of philosophy or make it an exercise of discipline? We can have some benefit that comes when we discipline our mind. We can have some benefit that comes from a different perspective from which we live life. But I'll tell you what it's meant to be. It's meant to be an experience with the creator of the universe. It's meant to be a personal encounter with the living God. It's meant to be an adoption process. It's meant to be a, a, an aspect of love. And yes, it's supposed to have some emotional component to it. It's supposed to captivate our heart. It's supposed to focus us in such a powerful way because it's an encounter. Not a religion, but a relationship. So, in order to return, we need to accurately remember now, some of us are saying, Pastor, that's getting harder every day to accurately remember. Well, brain scientists tell us that we have a tendency to revisit the past through our current events and our hopes for the future and tend to glamorize the past. There are some people who even glamorize the times of the Great Depression. But nobody in the Great Depression, if you would have asked them, so what do you think? Aren't these wonderful times? No, they would say happy times are coming again. They're out in the future, but this is a dark time. This is a drastic time. These are hard times. No one said, this is wonderful, and one day we're going to revel in this. No, but when we move into the future, some tend to look back with a nostalgia, and we say those days were better. In fact, we weren't the first ones to do it in the 20s. King Solomon said, a man is not wise who looks to the past and says, those days were better. We can't glamorize them, don't romanticize them, but accurately remember. How about if we remember the purpose of salvation? Well, that'll help. Remember the day. It's, it's wonderful. I love to go back to the time when I was nine years old, and for the first time, even though I had heard the gospel, probably by then thousands of times, I had an encounter with God where it became personal and I realized that this idolatrous nine-year-old, this nine-year-old who thought more highly of himself than he should, this one that thought he was all of that in a bag of chips, was confronted with the reality 
that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And no longer was I going to be happy comparing myself to other boys that were worse than I was. But I was only going to be content by encountering a carpenter from Nazareth who had this reputation that he emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, and he loved me so much if I was the only one on earth that needed saving, he would come and lay down his life for me. Would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise? There's something that happens in my spirit when I go back and I remember when I was born again. Some of us, if we're honest, somebody may be even watching this broadcast, would be saying, I I don't have that experience. I've I've been around church. I've I like the things of God. I appreciate the Bible. But have do you know him? Have you had a real encounter with him? I'm not talking about knocked off a horse on the way to Damascus. I'm not talking about something of great emotional impact or that thousands of people witnessed with you. No. I'm talking about that personal encounter of awareness, of confronting with the truth, and realizing the God of creation, the master of the universe, knows my name, he loves me, he has a plan for my life, and all I need to do is say, amen. All I need to do is say yes, and I'm included in. That's a powerful thing. We remember not only our salvation, but remember the purpose of salvation. Here's the purpose of salvation, to become a habitation of the Lord, not a visitation place for the Lord. You know, there's a difference between a habitation and a visitation. When you go to the Motel 6 or the Red Roof Inn or the Hilton Honors or whatever it is that you go to, you're really hoping that's only a visitation. It's nice for a place to visit, but there's no place like home. Why? Because that's been prepared to be a habitation, to make a place for the Lord where he doesn't come for a visit, but he comes for a stay. He comes to live. Now, think about this. There's people in your life you don't mind when they come and visit. But there's a time when you're kind of happy to see the taillights go down the road. Don't name their names. Don't jot their name down. Don't point to anybody. Why? Because there are certain things that are good for a visit, but there's other things you don't want to have for a habitation. Jesus has not come to visit with you occasionally. He's not come to visit with you on Christmas and Easter only. He's happy to visit. But here's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for a place to become a habitation, not a visitation. How can I make the Lord feel at home in me? How can This is what it's about. This is what salvation is about. To begin a process which the, the visitations of God no longer are the norm, but the habitation of God is the 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year, that that's what we want to be. Prepare me to be a testimony, to be a vessel, to be a place that honors you from which you live and move and have your being in my life. Habitation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This was God's intention with the nation of Israel. Not to come and visit occasionally, 
But what did he prepare them for at Sinai? To become a habitation. That his Shekinah glory would be upon them and they would be a peculiar people, a holy nation. That they and their entire nation would become priests of God. And that they would then teach and train the rest of the globe about what it's like to live under the glory of the Most High. Wouldn't that have been awesome? That was God's plan. Not a visit on Sinai, but a habitation in Jerusalem. That was his plan. How many of you know that when we say no to God's plans, we thwart them in our life? The people of Israel learned that they thwarted that plan. They were intended to become a habitation, not a visitation. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 says, And in him too, y'all, I have to put some Texas English in there, right? And in him too, you plural, y'all are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. A religious mentality says, let's build a building, let's build a temple to facilitate God's visitations once a week. That's the visitation idea. But let me show you what a habitation is. Let's come together and be God's people. And let us walk in the Spirit and release the operation of His Spirit in us in His gifts, expressions, and modes so that every time we get together, we demonstrate that God abides here and that we are His people and that we are being built together to be a habit. It's the people, not the building. The people... Everybody say that. It's the people, not the building. It's me, not the brick. (laughs) It's me, not the brick. Now, the brick and carpet and all that stuff, that's a facility. That facilitates a sheltered gathering of American people in Lake Worth that want to come together in fellowship. Why? Because hopefully we always want to be bigger than the biggest house of one of our members. Right? Because people want people to visit occasionally, but not every Sunday. And so we have a facility to facilitate the gathering of God's people. But that is not the significant part. The significant part is that they all get it. Hey, I'm not a visiting place for God once at Christmas and Easter every year. I am a dwelling point. The Holy Spirit lives in me. But I'm so small and inadequate on my own that I need others around me so that when we all connect and hook together, we make this mosaic, pardon the pun, of a group of people interconnected together that paints a picture other than ourself. That is an expression of God himself who is greater than us and beyond us and more able than anyone else. And we put our gifts, our talents, our expressions, our spirit together. And what happens? A beautiful expression of the glory of God. Would you give the Lord a hand? Aren't you glad you can participate in that? To come into intimate relationship with God. That's what salvation's for. For those of you who thought it was to avoid the fire of hell, that's that's an idea that's at the beginning. But that's not the thing that's going to take you down the road. It's to come into an intimate relationship with God. Exodus chapter 19, verse number 3. Listen to this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. He judged them. And I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that so intimate and powerful and personal? 
God is using this personal language of drawing people to himself. That's the purpose of salvation. That's the purpose. Remember the purity of the one inviting us. Oops, sometimes we forget this. The purity of God. Now, God is not afraid that he's going to be ruined or tainted by your close approach to him. God is concerned in love for you that a close approach to him without preparation will result in our destruction. We can't handle the truth. We can't, hand, we can't even handle the immensity of his love. We can't handle the fullness of his glory. We can't handle the full expression of his being. And so what does he do? He works and moves towards us. He makes steps towards us because he is light. He is fire. He is purity. And sin is darkness, and darkness cannot persist where light is. But Jesus said men love darkness than light. What is the number one thing that keeps men from close proximity with God? The awareness of their darkness and their fear of the light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then he says to us, you are the lights in the world. And be aware that they hated me. They'll hate you because men love darkness rather than light. It's a love problem. What keeps people from falling in love with God? They have to get past themselves because they're too much in love with themselves. Their own personal picadillos, rationalizing, excusing it. But we have great news. God is love. And he is inviting us out of the darkness into the hope of his glorious light. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. We have to remember this. God is pure. God is fire. God is righteous. And we're going to have to make decisions if we're going to press into his presence to leave some things behind. To let things go, to die to self, and to press in to the purity. Number three, remember that this world is corrupt. Have we forgotten that? Why is the world acting so crazy right now? Because it's always been crazy. We just haven't been at times aware of how crazy it can be. But these are wild and crazy times. Jesus called them, perilous times shall come, and men's hearts will fail them for fear, seeing what is coming upon the earth. Aren't you glad you don't have to have a heart that fails with fear, but a heart that's strengthened with the love of God and a confidence that comes from, I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We can have a confidence, not in ourselves, but in him who loves us and has purchased us by his blood. We need to remember, though, that this world is corrupt. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. So leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good, says God. I like this. This is the Message Bible. This just breaks it out. This almost sounds like the Doug Martin chasing a rabbit interlinear. So leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good. Leave it forever. And leave it. Leave that for the good. Leave it for a better position. Leave it to move on up, says God. 
Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all for myself. Now, now you understand why the Bible says he's a jealous God. Why? He wants you all to himself. He doesn't want to share you with any system. He doesn't want to share you with the world. He doesn't want you to become corrupted, broken, sorrowful, turned inside out and upside down. But he wants to make you whole. He wants to perfect you. He wants to bring you to conclusion and, and, uh, and to realize dreams that he's put inside of you. And as long as you're being corrupted, that won't happen. But the great news is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from every sin. Give the Lord a hand clap. <clears throat> and that will move me to this conclusion. We need to remember the path of humility back. It's simply a path of humility. Easy for me to say and for us to do, right? It's easy for me to say, hard for me to follow. But remember that wayward son in that parable that Jesus told. He was speaking of the Father's love, and he was speaking of the waywardness of humanity, even the most religious amongst us. Those that forgot about the ultimate goal, forgot about the purity of God, forgot about the intentions of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, had somehow let that slip their mind. And we meet a young man who demanded his inheritance, went off and wasted it in riotous living, found himself in the pig pen feeding the pigs as a Jewish boy. That's the last thing you should be doing with unclean animals. And saying to himself, I'm hungry, I would even eat pig food. And then coming to himself, returning to his rationality that had somehow been abandoned as he went off in that what the Bible would call dissipation. Dissipation of energy, dissipation of money, just selfishness, erotic living. And so he comes to himself and he says, the servants in my father's house have it better than I do being a servant here, so here's what I'm going to do. I've, I'm going to go back to him, and I'm going to say, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm willing to come back and work as a servant. When the story changes scenes, we see the father not on the porch or in the barn. We see the father at the end of the road. At the demarcation of his property, standing there with anticipation, looking for the son. Isn't that great news that God is looking for us? And as we come back along that path of humility, we come back and say, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm willing to be a servant. And God cuts us off in the middle of that and says, I know, but I've provided a lamb. I've provided a ram. I've provided something to deal with all of the consequences of this and he has the fatted calf killed he puts on a party he puts a robe of righteousness across your shoulders he slips a ring of authority on your finger and he shouts and he yells and he says this one that was lost to me now is back home and there's nothing but a party because he knows all along what was in his son and what it was that he needed to learn we have great news that if we forget all that and we slump and we fall away, we backslide, we become hard-hearted. If like the Ephesian church, 
we get all the apologetics right and we turn Christianity into a philosophy of life and it's something we just come to know and live our life by as just basic principles to live and we've forgotten it's about our heart. There's great news this morning. And that is to the Ephesian church as well as to the vision church of the Assemblies of God in Lake Worth, Texas. To us, to me. It's a message that says, remember, the path of humility will get you back home. And every one of us can walk that path by hearing these words, Oh, come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. This is, this is to the church. This isn't to the world. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Ever been double-minded What last week? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will he do? He'll lift you up. He'll lift you up. Humble yourself and remember how far you've fallen. Hear the words of Jesus to the Ephesian church. You have forgotten the heights from which you have fallen. But here's the hopeful word. Repent. Turn and do those first works over again. Get back to that place in your heart that you know you're supposed to be. Get back to that spiritual life, that vitality that comes when you walk that road of humility back to me and said, Lord, I tried to do it in my power. I tried to do it with my memory. I tried to do it with my skills and my abilities. And Lord, it really comes down to I'm my beloved and he is mine. And his banner over me is love. And I don't deserve it and I can't perform up to that level. But you love me with such an everlasting love and you gift that and pour that into me. Lord, bring me back and keep me at that place where I walk with an intimate knowledge of my God and my Savior. And it flows not out of my head, not out of my memories, but out of my heart of a rich and a real encounter with God. Aren't you glad it's not too late? Seated right here in this congregation this morning as well as over YouTube or Facebook, wherever you're hearing this, you have an opportunity right now to walk that road of humility. I find myself having to reacquaint myself with that road of humility. Lord, man, I've been trying to do it off my memory, what my ability is, whatever. But it really comes back to I know him, and he knows me, and he loves me despite the me that he knows. And he's going to take me higher. He's going to bring me in closer, and he's going to do something with my life and with us as a church that will give him glory, honor, and praise forever.